Well, hello everybody. Welcome back. It's been a long time no see. And this is my second time recording this now that I have the correct microphone fixed. It's been a hot minute since I've had myself set up at the microphone, so hopefully I officially now have my sound adjusted. I've got myself in a nice blanket fort to help adjust for my acoustically terrible apartment. But if I still sound like I'm in a tin can, I apologize. So if you are new here, I'm Olivia and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. And I really wanted to get back to this sooner than I did, but here we are, we're back. The holidays, uh, there's a lot of travel, life is crazy, and you know, that's okay. We're here now and that's what matters. So what I have for you today is indeed a wonky, crazy time, and your mind is going to be absolutely blown at least a little bit. You guys picked it, and today we are going to be talking about the flying primate hypothesis, a long-proposed idea that the large bats could actually be related to primates. I was first introduced to this idea by the Ologies podcast, they had a whole episode interviewing a bat biologist, a chiropterologist. They didn't go into the flying primate hypothesis a whole lot, but really just with them mentioning the idea, my mind was blown. It was not an idea that I was prepared for, and I got hung up on it a little bit. Now, apparently this topic is full of controversy and drama, the pro-primate people often think the anti-primate people are full of it, ignoring clear evidence and are obviously nuts to ignore decades of evidence supporting the flying primate hypothesis. And then the anti-primate people think that the pro-primate people are crazy, ignoring solid evidence in the opposite direction, and are obviously nuts to ignore the evidence against it. So people in both camps are super sure that one day there will be a time when the flying primate hypothesis is either 100% um, accepted or 100% rejected and people stop talking about it. So let's get into it, learn about some bat phylogenetic relationships, and then you can decide for yourself which camp you are in. And maybe we'll make some t-shirts so you can represent. And this is going to end up being a two-parter episode. I went down quite the rabbit hole. Usually, I'll save something in the range of like 10 to 15 papers and websites uh, covering the topic so I can, you know, get a nice coverage of it without leaning into it too much. But this time, I saved something like 50 scientific journals covering different bits of evidence for and against it. Things kept happening, like I'd read a paper and then they'd reference another one that had this super solid evidence, then I'd have to go find that one, and then lo and behold, 50 papers later, here we are. I didn't end up reading quite all of them, but still in the 30 to 40 range in the last couple of weeks. So we are going to get into the histories of bat taxonomy, cover the different bits of evidence for and against it. So buckle on in and join me on this ride. I think what we're going to end up doing in this episode is covering most of the evidence for the flying bat hypothesis or flying primate hypothesis. Bats already fly, we know that. Um, so we'll get into the history of bat taxonomy, where the flying, hypo flying primate hypothesis came from, and uh, the evidence for it. And then next episode, we'll get into the evidence against it and where things lie now. 
So if you are a bat biologist or you already know bats, like, don't spoil the secret for everybody else. We'll get to it next time. Okay, so first, let's back up a little bit and talk about bats as a whole and get you guys oriented to what and who we are going to be talking about. Bats, as you may or may not be familiar, are the only flying mammal that can really do sustained flight. There are some other mammals like flying squirrels or the flying lemurs, who are also known as colugos. Um, And these guys are avid gliders, and they do use air travel to go from tree to tree, but it's not considered to be true flight. They're just gliding. They jump into the air, they glide, they're hang gliders essentially, and then they land in another tree. Bats can actually use their wings as propulsion. They can turn, they can fly um, extended uh, flight travel distances. So bats are the only one, only mammals that can truly fly. There are over 1,400 species of bat in the world, and they do exist pretty much everywhere except the frozen areas around the poles. For the most part, if there are bugs or fruit to eat, chances are there are going to be some bats in the area to eat them. The smallest bat is the kitty's hognose bat, and this guy is only about 30 millimeters long, so if you're in American units, that's less than two inches. From nose to tail, and they weigh about two grams, less than one ounce. So that is less than a AAA battery or about 28 paper clips or an unused wooden pencil. Any of those things would weigh more than this bat on average. The largest bat is one of our flying fox friends that will be the focus of today. And it is the giant golden crowned flying fox. The giant golden crowned flying fox weighs up to four and a half pounds or 1.6 kilograms which is about the same as a small to medium-sized chihuahua. My family actually had a dog who was a toy fox terrier. They're um, one of the original breeds that made the breed was a chihuahua, so they do have chihuahua in them. Um, So she was a toy fox terrier that weighed about four pounds, so she would have been just a bit smaller than a large one of these flying foxes. For the wingspan, we're looking at a 1.7 meter wingspan, or about five feet and seven inches. So that wingspan is a few inches longer than I am tall. So that's a pretty big bat. Now for the fun taxonomy part of today, and taxonomy is pretty much what will be for the rest of these next couple of episodes. So taxonomy is the science of classifying and identifying different organisms. So what we'll be looking at is the evidence for bats to be grouped one way or another, whether they're more related to primates, less related to primates. So it's just going to be taxonomy week. So within the class of mammalia, those are the mammals, bats are then grouped in the next level down in order Chiroptera. Traditionally or originally, bats were grouped into two subgroups um, in suborder Megachiroptera, these were the megabats, and then Microchiroptera, the microbats. The megabats are, surprise, where all of the larger bats are grouped. So here we have the fruit bats, also known as flying foxes. If you ever read the book Stella Luna, that bat is a young fruit bat, so she would have been a megabat. Microbats, again, surprise, surprise, are all of the smaller bats. So things like the eastern brown bat, vampire bats, and that super tiny kitty's hognose bat I mentioned earlier. Other than size, there are some traits that have traditionally separated the two groups. 
One of the big ones is that microbats all use echolocation in some way, shape, or form to find their food, and megabats, for the most part, do not, or at least they don't use echolocation for food finding. There may be one or two megabats that have started clicking again to help navigate through the night, but it was unclear to me if it's considered to be a true bringback of echolocation or if it's a little bit different, but ultimately, since they primarily eat fruit, they're not going to be using the echolocation to really find their fruit. They rely more on eyesight. So, of course, there is that difference in diet, the microbats eating bugs, the megabats eating more fruit, nectar sorts of situations. But one of the big differences that was discovered that then caused a big stir in the world of bats are the way these bats' brains are structured. Microbats and megabats don't share some of the brain connections and pathways. And the real kicker here is that in megabats, some of these connections and neural pathways like the visual pathways in the brain that I do end up mentioning a few times, are actually nearly indistinguishable from the neural pathways of primates. This is interesting because brains generally evolve pretty slowly, so patterns and neural networks are conserved between groups. So what this would mean is that the brains of two separate groups would not typically have identical networking, unless they shared a common ancestor and were pretty directly related. So these connections were uncovered in about the 1980s and then sparked a resurgence and then essentially a resistance group that was determined to prove that the flying primate hypothesis was indeed correct. Fun fact though, the flying primate hypothesis has actually been around for a pretty long time. Carl Linnaeus, he's the guy that essentially invented and formed the framework for the entire field of taxonomy as we know it. You may recognize his six-level classification scheme of kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species, and biologists everywhere would recognize his two-part scientific naming system called the binomial nomenclature that we still use today. He also identified and classified upwards of 10,000 plants and animals over the course of his life, and since then, or some sites I saw attributed more and some less. And uh, the fun part is that some of these, even though have since been reclassified, both as new information has come up and also as the classification system has been tweaked from a two kingdom system to, I think we're at six kingdoms now. But many of the organisms that he named do still carry his name as the guy who named it. So what does he have to do with bats? In the late or in the late 1750s, uh, Linnaeus class was working on bats, and he actually put them as much more closely related to or as a descendant of the common ancestor of primates. There was some resorting since then, and uh, they're no longer considered to be a direct descendant of primates, or they weren't for a while at least. Um, but bats were, for a long time, sorted into a superorder called Archonta, and even getting into the 1900s, where we're going to be in the 1980s, 1990s for most of this, um, even at then, they were sorted into a superorder called Archonta, so this is where they were for a while. And Archonta included primates, tree shrews, colugos, and bats. So um, the bats aren't necessarily a sister group, or necessarily sharing a direct common ancestor with primates, but still closely related enough to be grouped into the superorder with them, 
And also keep in mind that this was bats as a whole, not just the megabats. So then when the 1980s came along and uh, people were looking at bat brains for reasons, and this one bat researcher, Jack Pettigrew, he was pretty big in looking in bat brains. Um, he was looking at the neural pathways in a couple groups of megabats, and over time, he realized that the pathway he was looking at, some of the visual pathways, and then another area called the superior colliculus, was organized the same way in primates as they are in megabats, particularly in things like lemurs and tarsiers. So these are kind of the older primates, the prosimians. And also interestingly, these specific pathways he was looking at are completely different from other mammals. So this meant two things to Pettigrew. Well, maybe a bit more than two, but two big things to Pettigrew. One, since these uh, pathways are the same in megabats and primates, these megabats must have shared a common ancestor with primates. And two, these connections weren't shared with microbats. So the megabats and microbats then also must not share a common ancestor. So this would also have meant that flight would have had to evolve twice in mammals. Cue the absolute insanity. The unfortunate part here is that for reasons that weren't super deeply discussed in the papers I read, bats don't seem to fossilize well, so we really don't have a very complete fossil record. So while we do have some fossils that indicate that all bats likely evolved from a microbat, there isn't really a whole lot of evidence to go back to and say, oh hey, they may have actually evolved from this other guy that is or isn't a primate. So while it does indicate one common ancestor with the broken fossil record, it really doesn't confirm much of anything. So most of what we have is comparing the physical traits and now DNA sequences between the living bats and lemurs. So also in the 1980s, DNA sequencing was really just becoming a thing. So again, scientists were mostly working off of morphology, which is the physical traits of organisms and comparing them between different groups. And even once DNA sequencing started to become more readily available for scientists in the 80s and 90s for things that weren't uh, medical or human genome project related, the results didn't really start to give much more conclusive evidence one way or another until really the late 90s, early thousands. So anyway, Pettigrew published several papers in the late 80s, early 90s, giving the evidence to back his claim that megabats were actually descended from primates, flight evolved twice, and that all bats don't share one common ancestor and were therefore diphyletic, which means that they have two ancestors and there are two main lineages to the group. The microbats had one common ancestor, probably a tree shrew, and the megabats had another, probably a primate. More specifically, under this hypothesis, the megabats would have evolved from colugos, the flying lemurs, who likely evolved from, well, lemurs. And since I'll likely say the word later, um, monophyletic means that a group has one common ancestor. So, um, so that's really the bulk of what the flying primate hypothesis is, summarized right there. So um, megabats were descended from primates, probably colugos, flight evolved twice, and bats are therefore diphyletic. Those were really kind of all of the points of the flying primate hypothesis. 
So his first papers in the 90s mentioned a few pieces of evidence in support of the flying primate hypothesis. Of course, one of his big ones were those brain characteristics that I mentioned and those pathways that are the same in flying foxes as well as in primates. But there are also some shared characteristics in forelimbs and kind of how those are structured. His 1991 paper that started going into some of this um, was called Wings or Brain, Convergent Evolution of the Origins of Bats, was discussing really just that. Did the wings evolve twice in mammals, or did these brain pathways evolve twice, once in primates and again in megabats? And then it was this paper that really sparked some of the very direct drama. And then there were three other papers that ensued where another group of researchers essentially called him out for not entirely looking at the big picture. And of course, flight only evolved once, megabants aren't primates, you're a loon. These are all freely available on Google Scholar, so they're super easily accessible. I'll put them in the episode description so you can read the drama for yourselves. It's actually kind of amusing. So Pettigrew responded to the first paper calling him out and really essentially called them crazy for um, not paying attention to the evidence and not listening to him. And then the other group again wrote back, called him crazy. It was a great time. And ultimately, what they were calling him out for was just really not looking at the big picture and all of the evidence that was available. They really didn't think that Pettigrew was drawing the correct conclusions. Um, but, you know, it is what it is at this point. So then in 1995, Pettigrew published another paper that summarized all of the known evidence at the time to back up the idea that megabats are actually primates and that microbats and megabats don't share a common ancestor. Most of this evidence was with shared brain characteristics and neural pathways, but there were some other physical characteristics and behavioral similarities as well. So in addition to the visual pathways, which I do think I mentioned specifically what that is in a little bit, um, megabats and the prosimians all share similar cone receptors. So the cone receptors are what help animals see in color. He also looked at the, so the visual vision pathway he looked at was called the lateral geniculate nucleus. This is one of the key brain pathways and structures, areas, that is really important in mammal vision. He found that the way the pathways were wired were the uh, practically the same in colugos and tarsiers, and then in the megabats and colugos. So since colugos have already at this point been determined to be directly descended from a primate ancestor, that right there would directly link the megabats to primates. Some of the behavioral similarities included the fact that they move awkwardly when they're on land, they're clearly better suited for moving through the trees, and they do so with ease, their neck postures are similar, as well as the way they carry their young when foraging for food. The musculature in colugos and megabats are also pretty much the same in their arms and hind legs. So again, if the megabats share these similarities with colugos, then logically, they would share a common ancestor with primates, and megabats may have come from a primate or colugo-related ancestor. Which, on that note, I will make sure to have a picture of a colugo on Facebook or Instagram, well, Facebook and Instagram, 
But um, if you do look at a picture of a colugo, it is entirely believable that it could be the link between primates and bats. They look reasonably similar, and the colugo would give that step between a lemur that does not have wings and something flying that does have wings. So what likely would have happened then, under the flying primate hypothesis, is that a group of lemurs started to evolve the gliding ability, and they gained those different skin connections to have that hang gliding ability, and then that would give us the colugos. And then over time, as some groups may have wanted to start to glide farther, uh, maybe they started kind of flapping a bit more to try to gain more height to access different fruit. And as they gained various levels of successes with that, the wing structures would have evolved until we get to where we are today with megabats. So really, it does make sense as a series of steps, like looking at the different animals. It's not the biggest stretch that somebody could make. Molecularly, there is also some support as well. Some of the antibodies in flying foxes are the same as those in lemurs, so there's one point. But some of the other points they had at the time of the mid-90s, some of them did very nicely support the flying primate hypothesis, but um, not all of them 100% did. Some of the molecular evidence they had really more just supported the idea that megabats and microbats don't share one common ancestor. So it more just supported the portion of the hypothesis that bats are diphyletic and don't just share, like I said, one common ancestor. So one thing they looked at was a the gene of a molecule or just or just the molecule itself is called alpha crystalline. And this is was structured differently in micro and megabats. So if they did have one common ancestor, they would expect that to be the same. And they also have different globins. And globins are some of the proteins that go into making things like hemoglobin. And that's some of the, um, that's one of the big proteins that's really responsible for carrying oxygen around the body. So again, um, if megabats and microbats had the same common ancestor, it would be expected that these structures would be the same. But since they're not, this is one of those bits of evidence that doesn't 100% support the primate ancestor, but it does definitely support the diphyly. We did also have some other DNA evidence that kind of supported the hypothesis. And again, it was more one of those things where it didn't really say yes or the other. It more really just supported the potentially supported the diphyly point, but it more so just didn't support monophyly or one common ancestor. So it really just gave a big question mark. So what this was, uh, was looking at the COI gene in the DNA, and this particular gene is commonly used to uh, compare sequences between different animals. Um, so when they sequenced this gene, it gave ambiguous results. So like I said, it didn't necessarily say yes to a primate ancestor, but it also didn't say yes to one bat ancestor, so this was one of those bits of evidence where the people that were in support of the flying primate hypothesis were like, well, hey, it may not nicely support ours, but it also doesn't nicely support the other guys, so we're going to take that as a win. Now, not all of the evidence is stuck in the 90s. There was some more, or there has been some more recent evidence as well. Some of it, again, fully supports the flying bat hypothesis. Some of it just supports the idea that bats don't all share one common ancestor, 
but there is at least a little bit of some support for flying bat hypothesis more recently. In 2010, Dell and colleagues were again looking at some of the different neural pathways and nuclear organizations of megabat and primate brains. What they were looking at in the long, fancy words were the cholinergic, catecholaminergic, and serotonergic systems in megabats. So what these systems do, the cholinergic system deals with how the body processes a molecule called choline, and this is really important part of healthy cell membranes, and I think I read that if this system isn't quite up to par or working correctly, it can lead to things like liver disease. The catecholaminergic system deals with the use of things like adrenaline and dopamine, and then the serotonergic pathways deal with serotonin. They chose these pathways because they're not involved in echolocation, vision, smell, or flight. And that's important because microbats and megabats, um, they have different capabilities in terms of these systems. For example, microbats use echolocation, megabats don't. So if they were to use pathways with, um, that were used in either of these systems, they wouldn't be able to tell if the difference was there because one can echolocate and the other can't, or if it was a difference in common ancestor. So using systems, using pathways that aren't involved in things like echolocation really helps to up the confidence that any differences they may or may not see are due to um, have whether or not they may share a common ancestor or not. So interestingly, these pathways were actually found to be different between microbats and megabats. And when they compared them between megabats and primates, they're the same. A 2015 study looked at the same pathways, just in a slightly different group of primates to have a more, um, to cover more ground, have a wider study group. And they actually came to the same conclusion. So both of these two studies do very nicely support potentially support anyway, the flying primate hypothesis. Okay, so I think that's all I have, all of the evidence I have for support for the flying primate hypothesis. And hopefully that is also coherent. When I was putting this episode together a little bit, it felt a tiny bit like I was pinning different things to corkboard, drawing lines in red yarn across it, and just kind of like pointing like a crazy person. But there is some really nice evidence that actually potentially supports the idea that megabats could be evolved from primates. So are you convinced yet? The idea that so many brain structures are the same between megabats and primates, I do think is incredibly supportive, especially when you consider the, flat, the fact that brains don't really change quickly. We know, and we do know that pretty solidly, really just looking within the primates, all primates share characteristic brain features, many of which I mentioned throughout this episode, from lemurs all the way to people. So if we did find another group that shared these connections, then it would be a logical step that then it could be descended from primates. So then if we have so much evidence and some pretty nice evidence too, then what could there possibly be going against the flying primate hypothesis? You'll have to tune in to the next episode to find out. So next time we'll be back with the part two where we will 
go over the evidence against the flying primate hypothesis, and then go into uh, the some of the final decisions of where bats are currently sorted. If you liked this episode and that cliffhanger and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe if you aren't already, and then drop a review of the podcast. And I think at this point you can do that just about wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, but I know for sure Apple Podcast and Podbean, you can do that. I want to say that Spotify has a rating system now. But you can also help the podcast grow by sharing it with your friends, with your family, everybody who needs to know about bats. And then they can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Podbean, just about wherever you listen to podcasts. To keep up to date on all of our happenings, follow us on Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky. Um, that's Facebook and Instagram. We are Quirky, Creepy, Freaky Pod. Thank you for listening. And again, next episode, we'll answer the question of whether or not megabats are primates once and for all. And I definitely have the authority to make that super official decision. See you next time.